Hey, hey everyone, this is Patrick Cacciatore with No Struggle, No Story. Here on No Struggle, No Story, we speak with highly successful athletes about struggles and adversities they faced and how these struggles and adversities helped them grow, not only as athletes, but people as well. So today I'm super excited to be bringing on former Washington State University runner, uh, the SAC president of Washington State and Cal, and the designer of the We Are United movement, Andrew Cooper. So thank you for coming on today, my man. Thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate you. And I, it is awfully generous for you to call me a highly successful athlete. <laughs> no man you've uh, i did compete at division one at two pac-12 schools which i'm very proud of but there are many 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 more incredible athletes than i am and so i'm grateful to be here and uh excited to have this conversation absolutely man. i mean you're a you're a humble guy but i mean i think what's even more amazing you're you were a great athlete but i think more than that it's what you've done you know off the off the track and off the uh, course that i think is what's really, really inspired me and really brought me to obviously become not only great friends with you, but also to bring you on here. And I think, you know, the first place that that kind of starts is, you know, the way you advocate for mental health and the way you advocate for student athletes all across the country. And so maybe um, kind of share with the viewers a little bit of what your journey with mental health and where this whole all started for you. No, that's a great question. And it's, it starts with my journey as an athlete. You know, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, um, started running when I was 10 years old to try to get closer to this girl I had a crush on who was on the <laughs> track club. And so I joined, joined the track club, tried to get a little closer to her. Um, and right when I joined, uh, she quit. And so that's how, my, <laughs> that's how my running career started. And for whatever reason, I didn't quit and really fell in love with the sport and learned how to discover really myself, my potential in it, um, and was fully invested in this. I mean, like when you're in high school wearing short shorts, like you're all in, you're committed. <laughs> You've like, got to be, man. There's no, I mean, the there's no, like, you know, going D1 is there's the high school experience is pretty isolating. Like there aren't many people at your high school that are making those sacrifices that you're making, um, that have the dream that you have. And so, I just remember being really laser focused on this dream and goal of um, becoming a professional runner and, and chasing that. And so I was running like 70 miles a week, lived in a motor home in Flagstaff, trained with pro runners up there and like right. was all in on this dream. And my right. And so I committed to Washington State University, thought that was my best chance at uh, winning a national championship, loved the team, loved the campus. And right before school starts that freshman year, uh, my dad randomly had a stroke and passed away a couple weeks later. And it was really my first experience, like, quite frankly, like being a white man in society and like growing up in, you know, a suburb of Seattle, like really my first real adversity. Um, and in experiencing that grief, I, I'll never forget going to class the next day. And one of my classmates asked me, like, hey, how's it going? Just like, a very normal question to ask someone you sit next to in a class. And I just told her I was good. And so that's when I really learned, oh, you have no idea what anyone's going through. That cliche is so true, but it hit me like a train that day. And I had no idea uh, that that kind of empathy, that I lacked that kind of empathy in my life. And so really in conquering that grief, um, not conquering, but you know, I was very fortunate um, to 
two things. A, discover this podcast by Michael Gervais, um, who's the sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks called Finding Mastery. Um, and this conversation he had with Ryan Holiday, who's an author and writes a lot about the philosophy of stoicism. This was literally the first podcast I listened to in my life. And I listened to it maybe a week after my dad passed away. And the whole thing about was about what's your purpose in life and this framework of stoicism, which is you only control how you react to a situation. You can't control the situation itself. And so taking that, um, I had a framework to cope with grief um, that quite frankly changed my life. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for because I was, I was lucky enough to, to take that pain, that suffering into an opportunity um, to grow and to become a better person. And uh, quite frankly, I don't even want to meet the person I was uh, in high school or before. Like, I don't even know what I was like. I was probably terrible, but that's what I say all the time, dude. I was like, I don't even want to know, man. Please, that's, I, I'm sorry to anyone I knew before at that point in my life. Um, but really, you know, that podcast, The Framework of Stoicism, and then um, going to therapy, uh, was very fortunate to be a student and an athlete out of school where that was available to me. You know, I didn't do it through athletics. Like, I just went to the counseling um, department at our school and I said, uh, hey, can I see a psychologist or a therapist? And they were like, sure. And it was a very weird thing to do for me, but it was, you know, ended up being so much more value. I was like, I should go to therapy, right? Like that seems like a yeah. good thing to do, Absolutely. but it ended up being so valuable because they helped me, the therapist helped me actually like process, you know, may I actually process what I was experiencing Absolutely. And understanding grief was so powerful and in, in how it's really just like these endless waves crashing and they feel so big, but um, they eventually subside, but they never really disappear or go away. And you just kind of learn to live with it. Um, but that freshman year was, is significant for me. Um, and that year I also, you know, I redshirted that year. I didn't run great. And by my sophomore year, I was struggling a little bit with imposter syndrome and like, do I even belong as a D1 athlete? I mean, every sure. freshman and sophomore is pretty bad <laughs> at their sport uh, sure. at the D1 level compared to the juniors and seniors. And so then I go to PAX 12 SAC, which was the student athlete advisory committee. Um, there were two reps from every single school and I was lucky to be the male from Washington state. And at that conference, it was the first time I heard real stories from athletes on other teams at other schools. And it was honestly those stories that inspired me um, to keep going, to not give up, to overcome that imposter syndrome and to have a truly, a true support network that I, I never really had before in my life or, or I did, but like it, because they were athletes, they could actually empathize so deeply with my experience in a way that I, I I don't know that my, is it your teammate relationship is not necessarily like that, you know, like sure. your teammate relationship is you're going to practice, you're doing the work um, and you love them. You're, they're your brothers, but you don't always have the deepest relationships with your brothers in terms of talking about mental health and grief. And, you know, it's a different it's like kind. It's a different dynamic, I think in a lot of ways. And I think it's really interesting. All these things you're talking about have like this overarching theme of mental health, but 
a couple of things stood out to me when you talked about it. It was like, obviously, you know, like the day, like the first experience, the day after your dad passed, when you just said, I'm good. And I think that exact, like, I guess, scenario is so common uh, around today is when people are feeling extremely rough feelings where they feel like I'm not okay, they don't share it. And that's the stigma of mental health. How important do you think it is for people to be able to share their feelings? Like you talked about hearing all these athletes share their stories to continue to grow as a society and as people. Well, it wasn't even, it wasn't even, I don't think we talked that much about mental health, but we talked a lot about racial injustice and racism because this was 2016 at the height of Colin Kaepernick's kneeling and Mm -hmm. We had very raw conversations with people from both sides of the aisle, you know, like, you know, someone sharing whose whose family um, served in the military, how she felt when he knelt. And then, mm-hmm. you know, a, a black woman at, at, you know, a predominantly white campus and team sharing her experience. And I'd never heard either, quite frankly, like sure. I was completely oblivious, but it, I, I really didn't see the power or I didn't see the stigma. Like I never was like, oh, there's a stigma around mental health. It just mm-hmm. kind of exists until a couple months later, my sophomore year, when our quarterback, Tyler Holinsky, died by suicide and was beloved on our campus and really shook our campus to its core. And just watching my, our community lose someone so loved was very heartbreaking. And because I'd already gone through that grief a year earlier and I didn't know Tyler personally, I was able to actually be a supportive figure for a lot of people in that moment and felt like I needed to um, in in serving my community. But I'll never forget how the floodgates around conversations about mental health just opened up. And we all like, (laughs) had many moments. (laughs) We had many moments where, you know, we were just looking at each other like, wow, we all go through the same thing and we never talk about it. And like, we're all struggling to barely keep our head above water and just doing this simple thing or thing that we're told is simple of just being a college athlete, being great, just sport in school. It's just those, just those two things. It's not difficult. Um, But I really feel like, I really believe that the pressure has been ramped up so much because as the money keeps pouring in and so, and social media, those two things combined I just think that college athletes today are facing an unprecedented amount of pressure to be the most perfect people possible and to be perfect in a, in a manner that's not even possible, quite frankly, like something is going to fall, whether it's in your personal life or in school or in sport or in your relationships, like something is going to fall through the cracks. And it's, it's really, I can't even imagine how, playing through a pandemic this last year must have been man like I it really is difficult for me to comprehend it was it was shockingly hard um in a lot of ways most most definitely mentally I mean you talk about physically I mean all the things that people had to go through being off for so long and then coming back that's one thing but then when you add it on to the mental stress of you know making sure that with masks and the way you're traveling and the stress of oh my gosh, like, what are my teammates going to think of me if I contract COVID? And then what are they all going to think? Like, it's going to be my fault that our team season is done. These kinds of things are other things you're dealing with that are so hard. And I think the idea is 
when the way we define the word perfect. And I think oh, in a lot of in a lot of colleges and in a lot of campuses, the way we define perfect is 4.0 GPA, all American athlete and, um, you know, uh, most popular person on campus. But in no way is that perfect. And I think that that's where the mental health problems come in. You talk about and then it, and it's another conversation about body image as well. I mean, what what is perfect? But perfect is just what you believe is the best version of yourself. And like, I think I truly believe that at the end of the day, that's how people should define perfect and that every single person has their own definition of it. I think it's really, really, um, dis I think it's just impossible to try and morph an entire society and group of athletes into one idea of perfection. And I think that's been one of the biggest issues. That's powerful. That idea of perfect, you know, is, is strong because as college athletes, we really, are in many ways viewed as perfect and told we're perfect by everyone around us in our community um you know kids look up to us uh and people in the community come up to us and they tell us how perfect we are and then the school not only that but the school constantly says oh you're the brand you're you're the face of the university and so the school that you love so dearly suddenly you're responsible for the image of it. And in a place like, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska or Pullman, Washington, like if something, if an athlete does something, it is front page news the next day and it stains the university and they tell you that. And with social media, it's impossible to avoid now. And this idea of perfection, you know, especially on body image too, is is very intense. You know, it's not only a 4.0, it's not only being great at your sport, it's also looking perfect. And, you know, I think that perfection is impossible just to start off, but like, it's what we're always striving for as athletes and we sacrifice and we endure everything, you know, to achieve that goal. That's what we're great at. That's what we're best at. And with, with running specifically, there's such a strong narrative around being, you know, as skinny as possible essentially and and very fit and like this is something that women I think struggle much more than men because the expectations of your body image in society are great and because of that I never really said I was like oh I have an eating disorder like I I never I felt like that was way too big of a line to cross because I feel like I have a good relationship with food yeah but um with women, it's 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 actually terrifying, quite frankly, how male-dominated the coaching space is, and then how much women suffer in the process um, in this quest to achieve perfection. Both, and this is a moment where the line between athletic performance and body image are very blurred, yeah. and. In toxic coaching cultures, which are common um, in college running and college sport, uh, the difference between the two is, is, is one of the same oftentimes. And, you know, I, I've had teammates who have courageously shared their story with me of like they almost like literally died from the eating disorders when they're running super fast. They're getting records. They're winning. They're going to nationals. They're getting their coaches bonuses, quite frankly. Um but for men, I think that this, this topic isn't discussed ever. And sure. uh, I wanted to use this platform to, to share just kind of my perspective on it. And 
my experience because I do think that like as athletes, especially on the men's side, at least in distance running, like, but really all athletes, we get a little too comfortable skipping meals or replacing a meal with a cliff bar. And like only now that I'm done running, do I see how that those impacts are manifesting themselves in my life and sure. how I'm much, I actually am very anxious all the time um, or just even recognizing what an issue is. Cause that's the first step. You got to recognize that you're struggling with something before you can take steps to improve the situation or circumstance. Like today, for example, um, had a pretty, had a lot of work to do today. Pretty busy day. Woke up, had uh, my normal three egg omelet with some cheese, you know, had breakfast. Can you cook one of those for me or what's the deal? My God. You gotta get some heavy creamer, heavy whipping cream, heavy whipping cream <laughs> in it, and stir it up. They're fired. Makes, makes it's like the best. Out. It's like the best super cheap meal you can have. I'll, I'll um, be I'll be expecting one of these when I come to Denver. You can bet yes, your sir. ass on that. But but I was so I got so caught up in the work I was doing and, and the coffee I had that I didn't have a meal until um, like four thirty in the afternoon, like when we were doing this. And so that means I went from. 8 a.m. three egg omelet, which is like not a large meal either, by the way. That's it's not only a lot, protein um, and coffee, I suppose. I mean, I don't even know how many times I've replaced a meal with coffee. But like, it's it's just never even talked about in, in amongst men. Like, and I and agree. the the culture is very um, it's just never talked about. Like, I and I I, I hope that. What people, what I hope athletes realize and start to see is that when they share their story, it does it does a couple things. First, it lifts a pre- it lifts a pressure or weight off your chest, off your personal chest and your shoulders of like, okay, people know, and they supported me, and I'm okay. To, it's okay for me to talk about these things. Like that is huge in and of itself in destigmatizing mental health. Um, like strength is asking for help. I mean, I wear the wristband for a reason, um, but sharing your personal story does that, but it also does this other thing when you vocalize it to other people is, you know, you, you might think like, oh, who cares? Like, yeah, this is what I do. It's not exciting or it's boring or like, yeah, other people, I mean, this is a common trap. Other people have it way worse than me. So I shouldn't share my story because I'd somehow be stepping over theirs. But when you share yours and you find the courage and confidence to do that, it inspires other people to share their story too. And that's, that's like really the domino effect. I think we've been seeing the last couple of years from athletes um, because of incredible people like yourself who are building this platform to share athlete stories to destigmatize mental health. But when people share their stories, it helps themselves internally, individually, but it also inspires so many more. Um, and what I really think we underestimate, I mean, it inspires other college athletes, but it really inspires young kids who are aspiring to be college athletes and I think that's the element that we just it's just difficult to see that because you're you're so caught up just trying to do sport in school um that is overwhelming but that's why I'm I'm such a passionate proponent in sharing stories and the power of stories you know I always say college athletes are superheroes and our stories are superpowers and that's I think we're starting to learn that um but it's taken far too long in my It's taken a long time. I embrace the power of story. 
and when you're talking about seeing so many people, I mean, think about what just happened with Naomi Osaka in the French Open. For anybody who doesn't know about that, I mean, she's a female tennis player, number one in the world. And I mean, I mean, probably I think she's the winningest um, athlete in the world in terms of uh, salary or in terms of prize money right now for the past year. Probably the most successful athlete in the world. And she retired from one of the four Grand Slams of the year to prioritize her mental health. And to me, that was an amazing step in the right direction um, in terms of everyone beginning to recognize that this is an issue on a global scale. Because I think you're seeing waves of it in collegiate athletics as people start to prioritize mental health. You start to have platforms like what you did with the one-on-one, what I'm doing with No Struggle, No Story, and what the Holinskis are doing with Holinskis Hope. You're seeing it all around. You're seeing a lot of professional athletes like Kevin Love, Hayden Hurst, Dak Prescott, all these very big time people who have a great following really beginning to share their story with mental health. And it's incredible, but I really think we're just scratching the surface because it's for whatever reason, still only in athletics, you know, for instance, I mean, I talked with my parents about mental health and before I went on this journey with it, I mean, they had absolutely no idea how to even phrase the term mental health near no idea, you know, and it's incredible to me. I was like, huh, like, that's unbelievable. And they still don't. I mean, I mean, they listen, they do because of my podcast and things like that, but their friends, for instance, are unaware until they've listened to my podcast. And then I think the importance of what you talked about with teaching younger generations is absolutely massive because we don't realize the impact we're having when you are 12 to 16 years old. You're that's probably one of the most time, one of the times you're most influenced as uh, in your growth as a kid. And if you are seeing all of these athletes begin to share their stories and begin to share their struggles and begin to embrace what we call adversity and things that we're struggling with and getting help and reaching out to people, then that's just going to only help us with, and we're going to see the growth eventually, but it may take years until these generations begin to uplift it even more. And I think that that's what you talk about the power of story. And I think you're, you're right on the money with it. And, and, and then this Naomi Osaka example is powerful I think because this was an instance of an institution um, you know the institution of the the grand slam I believe the institution of the people putting on the event who in their contract for if you want to play in this event and be eligible for the money to win you have to talk to the media x amount of times and I don't know if anyone like I I, I would challenge a, a casual fan to watch an entire post-game press conference and I think you'd be a little put back at how like you know unnecessary some of the questions are and maybe how uh, antiquated the institution is nowadays but it's less with Naomi it was much more she was struggling so much and really needed you know in the interviews that came out of her like when she was very young as a young black woman being questioned, being doubted. Do you belong here? Are you all this? And for her to win, which is what matters, right? Like the post-game press conference doesn't matter. That doesn't affect her Absolutely win. not. <laughs> in this instance, it was actually getting in her way. Like, and so she said, okay, well, I'm going to go to social media and post something to let people know I'm not going to interview so that I can focus on winning this tournament. And, you know, I don't know the backstory of what happened with her, but I'm guessing she doesn't have social media on her phone so that she can actually like focus on exactly. enjoying life. And meanwhile, everyone on social media lost their minds. And yeah. in the process, you know, then she gets fined 
$15,000 and it's this whole story that she just doesn't want to talk to the media so she can focus on her mental health. And it was an instance where her personal health and safety was at odds with the best interests of the institution trying to make money off of her. You know, they want to make, they want stories of her talking and they want to question her. It's an this is a moment where they weren't aligned. And I think what was so courageous of her, um, particularly as a young black woman was to say, no, I'm gonna prioritize me. And, you know, she just withdrew from the tournament. She goes, I don't need this. My mental health is more important than, you know, the money at the end of this tunnel or the people making money off of me. And the people exactly. go, oh, this is, I don't know if you, a lot of people on social media would go, how dare you have sympathy for or empathy for someone who's so rich, the most successful athlete of the year, you said. Mm. But we're all people at the end of the day. And if you're the kind of person that doesn't have empathy for someone's mental health because they have money, that's, I, I just don't have respect for people like that, quite frankly. I think we should all treat each other with the same type of respect and support that we all deserve, that we would all want if we were struggling and in the same boat. And it's um, her courage in standing up against an institution, I think is one that we are going to be talking about many years from now because I can't really think of a moment where an athlete so courageously by themselves stood up, um, not only for mental health, but to prioritize their interests as well. And um, she, she's just so inspiring in that regard. But I, there's also a very real element of her, I mean, and Serena, uh, you know, being black women and how black women are treated in that space of tennis. I mean, this it's a pretty toxic environment and culture, but no, the, the stories that we share, it, it's luckily, I feel like in the years that I've been a college athlete and since, you know, what losing Tyler in our community, it has changed and the stigma has been broken. And I, I really credit a lot of it to Kim Holinsky, Tyler's mom, who has been so incredibly strong and, um, you know, just incredible and inspiring and her sharing her story and turning such a dark moment and event into such a bright light for so many and I, I know she's already saved so many lives um but that's why we say strengthen stories a lot because we really believe that the more people own their stories the more people find the strength and courage to share their stories um that the stronger we all become. And that's especially difficult with social media now where we're expected to have a perfect front. We're expected to be perfect on social media, but the reality is none of us are perfect and we all struggle. And when we find the courage to embrace our imperfections, to embrace where we fall short, to embrace the moments where we're struggling and not on top of the world, I think that's when we all collectively start to change the narrative and start to destigmatize mental health for all of society. I couldn't agree more. I think that that's honestly one of the best statements I've ever heard. And when it comes to that, it's like, I mean, first of all, Miss Helinski is, I mean, been an incredibly inspirational figure for me with the way she turned such a tragic event into something that is saving thousands of lives. And personally, exactly. I'm wearing it too. For anyone that's, you know, you can't see us, but we're both wearing Helinski's Hope uh, bracelets right now. I mean, it's a constant inspiration to me. 
um, what she's done. And I mean, I still remember my freshman year at university of South Carolina where her other son, Ryan was the quarterback, um, when, when I came in as well. And she came and spoke to all the whole student athlete body. And again, at that point, like we talked about mental health, wasn't as talked about, uh, I mean, even three years ago, I it was not the same. And so when she came, you know, she really brought it to the forefront of my mind. Then I realized, okay, like that's something I'm really struggling with. And, you know, so be it towards the end of my freshman year, I started to sit, suffer like serious bouts of depression, and anxiety. And I remember that talk and what she, t- and what she spoke about and how, how to reach out for help. And that's exactly what I did. And without that talk, I don't know if I would have known exactly how to go about what I was feeling. And I'm sure that she's done the same thing for thousands and thousands of people at this point with their movement and, you know, the power of what they're doing. So, I mean, she's an incredible figure. So Kim, if you're listening to this, we love you. Uh, and then, you know, the, the next thing I want to talk about that you were speaking about is the power of social media and what it's doing, um, you know, in society right now. And I think the biggest one is what you talked about is that everyone is trying to gain quote unquote perfectionism through popularity. And it, it becomes about followers. What are going to people going to think about me? People are only posting the be- best versions of themselves. And so that's what media wants, you know? And so when they lose probably their biggest figurehead and probably the biggest storyline, you know, you really begin to realize what their priorities are. And that's exactly what happened. The way the French tennis federation reacted, I don't know if you've ever seen a statement, but they pretty much said, like they blew it off. They said, okay, hope she feels better. Like we need to go back to running a tournament. Like we don't care. And that's legitimately what it was in essence. And it was shocking to me. Um, And it just shows how far we have to go. But I think what she did was just such a large step and really shows that, you know, you can use social media one of two ways. It can be really toxic or you can use it as a great platform to show other people the right things and the true version. And I think that that's a really a great way we can improve as society is that talking about important things on social media, not only showing the best versions of ourselves and really being great role models to the people that are younger so that they realize whatever they look like, you know, whatever race, whatever skin color, whatever they feel, whatever they're going through, anxiety, depression, rough days, that they shouldn't be afraid to share with others, that there's actually power in that. And there can be power in social media, but it can also put all of us at a severe deficit with our mental health and with body image and with just, I mean, truthfully, like our daily lives, it can really put a dampener on it. And I've definitely experienced that. Something that I'll never forget from Kate Fagan, who's the author of this powerful book called What Made Maddie Run. Um, Kate played basketball at the University of Colorado, and Maddie was one of her um, her best friend growing up, and she ran at the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League school. You know, she was perfect. She was an Ivy League D1 athlete, um, and she took her life, and she died by suicide, and in the book, Kate, Kate does a really powerful job of illustrating um, this, this dynamic of the image you portray to others and to society, and then how you are truly experiencing life inside and how different those can be. Um, and how someone who's really struggling, you would never know that they were really suffering and struggling in that way. And with, um, I'll never forget when I was very lucky to hear her speak at, at the Pac-12 SALT conference, which was student athlete leadership team. And 
it was honestly a pivotal moment in my journey as a college athlete rights advocate um, because this was the room. Every athletic director was in the room. This was all the decision makers in the athletic department. And I had already, we had multiple of us had already passionately spoken about how we had seven um, college athlete driven mental health initiatives throughout the PAC 12 and all were wildly underfunded and only existed because we were struggling so much. We felt we had to do something. Um, and Kate goes and delivers one of the most powerful mental health talks I've ever seen or experienced. You know, athletes are crying in the room. I'm struggling. You know, I'm holding back tears. It was just so moving. And I remember looking around the room and just seeing athletic directors, all of them typing on their computer and not, no one caring. And it really broke my heart to realize they just don't care. And they say they care, but like what I want to see is I want to see money spent on counselors. I want more counselors. We shouldn't have two counselors for a thousand athletes at Cal. Stanford shouldn't have one counselor for 800 athletes. Like, I don't even know the stat of how many athletes have died by suicide in the last five years in the Pac-12. It's, it's double digits. I guarantee you it's double digits, which is so heartbreaking um, that it's this much of an epidemic. But with the social media front, something she was talking about is how you know, in the past, only celebrities had to curate an image for the meet, for the public and have a life, have an image at home with their friends and a life. But now with social media, our generation, this is something adults, you know, need to really understand. We grew up with social media, right? Like, you were what, like 10, 11 when Facebook came out? Like, when it was actually cool before parents were on it and stuff? Like, exactly. we grew up with it. I, I, I became a person... I don't know what it's like to exist without social media, quite frankly. Um, it's been a part of my life, my entire life. And our generation is really the first like social media native generation where we grew up with it. Um, and we're seeing the toxic implications of social media that prioritizes engagement over everything. It doesn't matter how people interact with each other on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. It just matters that they're interacting. And it, I think it's starting to bring out the worst in us. And with athletes specifically, especially with NIL now, I mean, like, and now you're always being told by your athletic department, you're the face of our university. Like, as an athlete, you feel this very strong burden to, and responsibility, quite frankly, to put on a perfect image for the public and for people. And that is a very heavy burden for 18 to 22 year olds who are quite frankly, just trying to do well in school and do well in their sport. That's all they're trying to do. And it's very difficult to do either of those individually alone. Like doing school is a difficult thing and doing D1 sport is a very, very difficult thing. And athletes, I don't know how you guys did this last, I mean, college athletes, when I was an athlete, it's incredible that anyone does it. And I think that our stories the stories I heard from athletes that no one knew about um, blew, blow, my, blow me away. And those, those stories need to come to light. And I, I don't know how you guys did this last year, quite frankly. It, it, it was such a terrible or such a challenging year for everyone. But the pressure of, you know, being perfect, like, like you said, wearing your mask everywhere. Like, oh, you can't even go out anywhere to do anything because um, – if you're the person, if you go out and then the team gets COVID or you get COVID or someone else gets COVID and you don't, 
you're gonna you're be gonna blamed feel horrible about that you're gonna blame yourself about it and not only that but what about a false negative or a false positive i mean and that those were very common you know our friend daniel had to miss a tournament due to a false yeah, positive exactly. day of. and that is just a looming stressor and then you're just doing zoom i mean it's at the same time though you know hearing you talk about what what you took away from it how you guys you and your teammates came came before the show came together as a family and like when you wanted to move into your shell you leaned on each other instead and how it taught you to be grateful for all the opportunities you get to build relationships and how being an athlete is way bigger than the sport itself it's not about getting the dub it's not about the wins and losses it's about the relationships you build together as a team um, and hopefully together as an entire community on campus um, and across the country too, because hearing you talk about that is, is so inspiring and, and a reminder why, to me, why college athletes are superheroes, because you guys are trying to do the most in the toughest circumstances and the way that you persevere in spite of that is truly inspiring. And so I, I commend you so much. And, and not only that, but then you're also, let's put a little respect on your name. You're also now the SAC president at Nebraska uh, and also doing this platform. I mean, Patrick is a king. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. I appreciate um, it, man. I, I just, everything, uh, you're doing everything you possibly can to have the biggest impact on your community that you possibly can. That is, in my book, the definition of a king or queen, you know, depending on your gender. And uh, I think it's it's very inspiring and it makes me want to start D101 back up and, and get these conversations going. And, and it just gets me excited about the impact that college athletes collectively can have if we're united in our voices. And if we have a community that helps us connect across campuses, I mean, not across sports, on a campus, across campuses, I um, mean, across conferences too. And, and I think that's what we deserve. And so I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity to share my story and, and, you know, to hear yours and to be inspired by you and following you on this journey in the short bit of time I've known you. Um, but it's very powerful what you are doing. And, you know, I, I just beg that you don't stop. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I don't know if I deserve that much credit. I'm uh, just doing what I really think that our society needs and what I think, you know, seeing so many of our friends and people just uh, what they go through and really just trying to do the best to, you know, make this world a better place every day. And I think that that, at the end of the day, that's all we want. You know, I think we can all get caught up in winning losses, success, things like that. But at the end of the day, what it's really about is, you know, this relationship that you and me have built through this platform, you know, like coming together as people, bring, being a positive influence in people's lives every day. You know, I made a pact with myself before this year, you know, obviously like a lot of my depression and anxiety came from that perfect image idea. And it really did. And because I wasn't meeting that standard and I wasn't, you know, a full-time starter on my team, it it made me feel like I had no identity and that's what athletes are up against every day and to any way to even make one athlete realize that they are so much more than just this player for their for their uh, university or just this athlete itself but you're a person who's having a positive influence on hundreds of people that you don't even realize and to make people realize that and you know give people the opportunity to think that highly of themselves is all you can ever ask for and so I really appreciate it but I think uh, you know the powers and the people that are doing all 
this really. And, uh, you know, I think it's amazing and it's been the most inspiring thing ever for me. You talk about this. I mean, just this conversation period just makes you want to go out and, you know, and just continue to build this thing that we're doing, that we're trying to do. And so I guess to kind of finish off, I would love to, um, talk a little bit about, the CAA that you're building, I believe, right? It's called CAA. And if it's you can please CAA. talk a little, because you talk about unifying the community, I guess, last little, last minute or two here, if you could just- We're not, it's, it's, it's not public yet. So I can't okay. talk too much about it. Okay, sorry. Um, but My the bad. points I made about uniting the college athlete community, um, okay. I'll apply. Like, there we go. Well, we'll we just say we've got something on the horizon that we're very excited about. And this guy has been incredible and he is doing amazing things for people all across the country. And uh, I'm, you know, very grateful to have you as a, uh, have you as a friend and just a person and a mentor. So I appreciate that, man. You know, I, I just believe that college athletes underestimate the power of their story. And the more united our community is, the more empowered we are to share our story with ourselves first off, you know, and then with our peers and other athletes, and then hopefully with our broader communities and families. And I really believe that in this moment in our society where we are so divided um, across so many lines and in some instances, justifiably so, and in other times just irrationally divided for no reason, it seems other than, you know, whether you prefer one color over another, one TV show over another. And I really believe that college athletes are time and time again, the force in our communities across the country that unite us in spite of our differences, whether that's to celebrate a touchdown or whether that's to celebrate, you know, an awesome kill on a volleyball court, or if it's to celebrate the stories that we share and the impact we have on the children in our communities who are aspiring to be just like us. Because, you know, when you were 10 years old, like 12 years old playing tennis, like it was, it was the college athletes who like inspired you the most because you could relate to them the most. Like I can't relate to Roger Federer. Like, you know, he's just out there like, cool. That's, I mean, that, guy, that guy's a different that, being. <laughs> it's like oh that's very very cool that's the the superman yeah. you know but like we all are superheroes in our communities and and what's crazy to me is that we don't see that and so hopefully the movement we are sparking together um is simply in providing athletes with a community and a platform um inspires us to realize that and to have that impact on our community and um, the communities that we are a part of. So I'm very grateful for this and, you know, this platform, I'm so, so, so excited to see it become um, a powerful force in society and the more conversations you have. And once, once someone believes in this with some money, uh, quite <laughs> frankly, and some NIL, NIL money at the end of the month, once someone believes in this with some money and, and, and the production levels up and you have you're not doing it by yourself either you know you have support helping you with it like you're a great interviewer and your story is powerful and, and the more um the bigger your platform is you know the better i feel about the direction um our community is moving so i'm very grateful for this and uh stoked for what's to come 
Yes, sir. I couldn't think of a better way to close this out. Thank you, uh, Andrew. You were the absolute man. And I'm excited for everyone to listen, my man. Appreciate you, my brother. Yes, sir.